Before we get into the message this morning, I just wanted to give our church an update about all of our ministry partners in Ukraine. As many of you have been in prayer and you've been very much connected with uh, what's going on throughout the world, I wanted you to know that we uh, have uh, quite a few pastors and missionaries who serve in Ukraine, uh, some of them from the United States, some of them are natural citizens of Ukraine, and I want to give you an update that all of them are safe, but all of them also are displaced, and many of them are choosing to stay and minister uh, to those who are sheltering underground, so please very much be in prayer for their safety. I also wanted to let you know that over in Mission Central that you may see a group of people gathered, and what they're doing is that they're going to be praying for Ukraine, and if you would like to join them and pray with them, you are certainly welcome to do that. It's an open prayer invitation if you just want to join them for that. And so let's just continue to be in prayer for all of our brothers and sisters um, that are there and um, for this to be resolved and for peace uh, to rule and reign in those countries and for the safety of all. Amen? All right, well, why don't we pray and then we'll get into the word this morning. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity for us to gather as the body of Christ. Thank you for our time of worship and our time of remembering what you've done on the cross through communion. Thank you, Lord, for this time of opening your word. May all of our hearts be tuned to hear your word, to receive it, and most importantly of all, God, respond to it. So, Father, help us to be hearers and doers of the word today. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a little kid, um, I think I was like six, seven years old, I was riding the school bus on the way home from school, and on the street that I lived, I was one of the last few kids to get dropped off. So I remember riding the bus for a really long time, and our bus driver had always had the younger kids sit up front and the older teenagers sit in the back. And so as a younger kid, it was always super cool to think about sitting closer to the back of the bus. It was kind of like, you know, you had a ride, you got to sit at the back of the bus. And this particular day, the bus driver was feeling a little generous, and because there were all these empty seats, he said, hey, all the younger kids, if you want, you can go and choose your own seat. You can go sit in the back of the bus. This is a big day for me, right? And so it's like I go back there and I'm like, well, which seat do I want? I've never been to this area before of the school bus. And as I was selecting my seat, I, I found the perfect seat. And because we had a little uh, bit of a drive to my house, I passed out and just fell asleep. And then I woke up and we're parked on my street, but we're uh, probably about a couple hundred yards away from my house. And the bus driver tells everybody no one is getting off of this bus until we find out what happened. I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> I've been asleep. Apparently, the girl who was in the seat behind me had gum in her hair. And someone had either put gum in her hair or there was gum under the seat and it had gotten in her hair because maybe she was also laying down. I don't know. I had been asleep. And so the bus driver said, we're not getting off of this bus until someone fesses up to having put gum in this girl's hair. And everybody's looking at me. <laughs> and I'm like, I was asleep. And they're like, sure you were. And I'm getting falsely accused 
and I'm feeling all this pressure. Have you ever been in a situation like this where you're being falsely accused, but then you begin to ask yourself, did I do that? <laughs> like, because so many people are putting pressure on me, telling me I did it, but I know I didn't do it, but I kind of started feeling like I did it. And I'm like, well, maybe I was asleep and I grabbed a piece of gum under the seat and <laughs> threw it. Like, I, I don't know, like... I don't know what happened, but all I know is that I didn't do it. And, and then parents started showing up because they saw the bus at the end of our street, and they wanted to know what was going on. And the bus driver said, these kids aren't getting off the bus. Well, you know, parents normally comply real well with those types of uh, instructions from school bus drivers. No, the parents were getting heated. They were getting mad over this thing. And now the parents are like, you let my kid off this bus right now. And he wouldn't. Needless to say, that bus driver was no longer the one who was driving my bus the next day from then on because he wouldn't let, I mean, we were on there what felt like an eternity for me as a kid. I'm sure it wasn't near as long as I thought, but I walked off that bus still being shamed by everyone on that bus and the bus driver feeling like I had done it and they were all just waiting for me to fess up to it. And man, that felt awful. I still remember the way that felt and I was a little kid I need to give that to Jesus. Uh, (laughs) Jesus was wrongly accused all throughout his life and all throughout his ministry. And as Jesus was wrongly accused, he was being wrongly accused by people who misunderstood him, people who misunderstood his purpose and his reason for coming, people who were just jealous of him because of the crowds that he was attracting A lot of the religious leaders of Jesus' day were very jealous of that because here's this guy and all of a sudden all these people are following him and they're just uh, wanting to point their fingers and look to find him doing something wrong because they just knew he had to be doing something wrong. There are many times all throughout the Gospels where we'll read about the life and the story of Jesus where there's a group of people who are strategically there just waiting for him to slip up and waiting for him to do something wrong so they can point it out to everybody. Like that's their sole purpose for being there. And Jesus sees all this and Jesus knows all this because he knows their hearts. But at the same time, Jesus was challenging the status quo by bringing a lot of change. And people, they were resistant to change back then just like they are today. Because change is difficult. It can be tough to navigate, especially when we have our minds made up about things and we think that we've kind of got a a safe, healthy, productive rhythm in our life that we would call good and we enjoy it. Then somebody comes along or something comes along and they want to change it all and it gets us all in a tizzy and we can be just like those religious leaders and skeptics of Jesus' day where we're kind of standing on the sidelines waiting for something to go wrong so we can point our fingers and expose it because this change that's happening just can't be good because it's disrupting what I like and it's disrupting my rhythm. And this is what Jesus was doing, but he wasn't just changing things to change it. No one should just change things just for the sake of change. There should always be a purpose behind it. Jesus' change that he was bringing was actually coming through him bringing clarity to the heart of God. Because they thought they had figured the heart of God out. They thought they had figured out the scripture. They thought they knew what to do and what to look for. And Jesus was going, "Mm -mm, 
No, you got it wrong. And I'm exposing the areas that you've gotten wrong so you can course correct because you've gotten in your own way. And Jesus is trying to actually bring clarity, but all they look at it as is a threat. They just see the threat of this guy coming in and upsetting what they've done in the way they want to do it. We get accustomed to those things happening a certain way in our own lives, but when we're confronted with change that challenges our methods or challenges what we've gotten comfortable with, how do we respond? Let's look at Mark chapter 2. We're going to read through chapter 3, verse 6. So buckle up. We're going to read some scripture this morning. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, stop right there. Isn't that interesting? What's the deal with that? As you look at this guy being lowered down through the ceiling by his buddies, obviously, they're not saying, hey, let's get this guy closer to Jesus so he can get his sins forgiven. That's not their goal, is to get this guy closer to Jesus to get his sins forgiven. Their goal is to get this guy closer to Jesus so that he can walk. They want their friend who's paralyzed to be healed and to be able to walk. That's their purpose. So Jesus, what's the deal with this sins forgiven thing? Like what's going on with this? Verse 6, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And now Jesus knows what's going on. Immediately, Jesus is perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves. And he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say rise and take up your bed and walk. Isn't this interesting? This guy's like there. Could you imagine being this guy just laying there? His buddies are like hanging on to him. And Jesus decides to teach a little lesson. <laughs> and they're like holding on, you know, to this guy. This guy's laying there, and, you know, in front of all of these people. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And then he can tell these people are, are, are being skeptical. And he exposes the skepticism of their hearts. And he says, which one is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or rise up your, and take your bed and walk. Well, obviously, the easier one to say actually is your sins are forgiven, because who knows if that really happened? You can't see the evidence of that immediately in this man's life. It's not like all of a sudden, you know, he changes, you know, uh, his physical appearance because his sins are forgiven, just like when you and I and our sins are forgiven. We can't always automatically see a physical difference. Maybe there's a little bit more joy or a little bit more peace or something like that, but not like something as evident as a guy that couldn't walk before getting up and walking. So Jesus is going, all right, guys, you skeptics, which one's easier to say? Take up your bed or your sins are forgiven? So it's a rhetorical question. And this is how Jesus frames this, verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. 
he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table at his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, this idea of reclining at the table, this means that you're not just here like as a guest, but it's kind of like, you know, when you're with us, you're family type thing. If you're reclining at the table, you're not just there as like a PR move or a PR stunt, or it's not just something that's something formal. This is like inviting someone intimately into your home to where you're getting close and getting connected like these are your friends if you're reclining at the table you wouldn't recline at the table culturally if you weren't very comfortable with these people and weren't saying these are my people so here's Jesus reclining at the table with sinners and tax collectors Verse 16, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. And then verse 23, on one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So let's recap here what we just read. Mark writes how Jesus forgives a lame man and heals him, asks a tax collector to join his team and has dinner with him and a bunch of sinners, doesn't have his disciples fast because he said they don't have to, allows his disciples to pick grain on the Sabbath and heals the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day of rest. And the whole while... People are just accusing him over 
and over again. People are criticizing him over and over again because what he's doing is challenging the things that they have placed in this, 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 this position of great importance. And Jesus is trying to show them really what's important. He's trying to show them what actually matters. Even with this guy with the withered hand, they're looking to criticize Jesus for healing somebody on the Sabbath day. Well, because that's work. That's work, and we're not supposed to work. And, and if, they, if he heals them, then that's work, and you shouldn't do that. These guys took the law of the Sabbath rest to the nth degree and added so many different interpretations to it that it became so burdensome that the Sabbath was not a day of rest. It was a day of maybe I should just hold my breath, not move because I don't want to sin. And it was so legalistic and so oppressive, even to the point that you can read in the Jewish Talmud, which was part of their oral law and oral tradition that they would add to the interpretation of the law about the Sabbath, in the Talmud, they would say that one of the, uh, on, the day, on the Sabbath day, if a wall falls on a man, like it falls down on him, you can go check to see if he's alive. If he's alive, you can help him get out. If he's dead, you can't touch him. Just leave him there until the Sabbath is over. So you have to go, ugh. Bob, <laughs> you breathing? Uh, whoo, don't want to, don't want to sin. Uh, look at it from this angle. I think I saw him move. Uh, you okay there, buddy? Oh, he's, he's probably dead. Yeah, that's what they would do. Like, it was that extreme. Now, that's not in the Bible. They took this law that God had given them, and they added so many complicated layers to it, because they were so stinking self-righteous in their own interpretation of the law. And when Jesus challenged that, they're sitting there going, who does this guy think he is? Who does this guy think he is to come and challenge our traditions and challenge what we have held on to as right and correct because we're right and this guy's wrong. But Jesus was trying to bring clarity to their misinterpretations. Jesus was trying to show them the heart of God and what actually matters. Jesus was trying to show them that to God, it actually matters more that somebody gets healed than you get to be self-righteous about not working on the Sabbath. Jesus wanted them to see that what truly mattered. And what this shows us is that God's priorities are often backwards from human values. Because you and I do this very same thing that the Pharisees did to the Scripture at the way that they would interpret it. We add all of these cultural expectations onto the Scripture. And we put all of these presuppositions on Scripture and all of our pretexts that we put onto the Scripture to make our lives make sense or to preserve our traditions. And so we look at the Scripture through our lens of our experience, what we've been taught, how we've been taught to properly interpret. And as we look at that Scripture through that lens, oftentimes we get things wrong and we get things backwards because we're trying to speak to the Bible instead of allowing the Bible to speak to us. And when we try to speak to the Bible, then we go around proof texting, looking for scriptures to try to back up our agendas and our ideals because we want to show everyone how smart we are and how right we are. And that's exactly what the Pharisees of Jesus' day were doing. And it puts our hearts in a position where we're not very teachable. 
And when Jesus tries to show us something and bring clarity to something, whether he may use a a friend or or a minister, or he may just use his Holy Spirit to try to bring clarification, we'll start arguing. We'll argue with the Bible. Because we say, well, that's not, that, that's, I, I don't think that's what that means, and that's not what, how I've always heard it, and, and, and this is what I think, and who cares what you think? Who cares what I think? Because God's ways are higher than my ways. God's opinion and his thoughts on the matter are much higher than mine. Amen? And so all the time we're just looking and, 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 and we divide over this and we hurt each other over these things. And it's because we're valuing oftentimes the wrong things. And perhaps God's wanting to bring some clarity in your life and show you some things. But it challenges your methodology, what you've accepted, what you have elevated to a place that you've made something sacred that's not supposed to be sacred. Oftentimes we elevate things to that position of being sacred and and it trips us up because we get so just adamant about making sure that we keep those things preserved in that way and Jesus got wrongly accused because he wasn't doing things the way that they had always been done religious pride always thinks it's got everything figured out it does and here's the problem with that we fall into the trap of thinking this way Because maybe we experience something or we learn something and we think it's the only way. And that thinking hinders us from being teachable. And truly, we need to be humble and teachable and allow the Spirit of God to lead us and guide us into all truth. Amen? That's why at BCC, our very first core value is that Scripture is our starting point. We start everything with Scripture. We want to make sure that we start our decision-making, our planning, all of our expectations, all those things with Scripture. And if it's ever out of line, we need to go back to Scripture and we need to repent of getting in the way of what God wants to do. Because ultimately, we all need to submit to the authority of the Word of God. Amen? And now there's a lot of things the Bible doesn't speak to, but we can still even find the character and nature of God written within the Scripture, and it can help us discern what would be pleasing to God. And then there's other things that we live out and navigate that we need to seek the Spirit's guidance and help on. But as we grow in clarity, we need to submit to the truth of the Word of God and be humble and be teachable. I found a really good quote um, on this idea of teachability, and it says this. The unteachable man is sentenced to being taught only by experience. The tragedy is that he reaches nothing further than his own pain. Man, the unteachable man is sentenced to being taught only by experience. So that means unless he can sense it, feel it, experience it, then he's, he's pretty much made his mind up and he's not going to listen. He's not being teachable. And he thinks that just cause... I saw it this way or experienced it this way, whether it was successful or a failure, then we just write it off. A lot of times parents do this to their kids, where maybe um, as you were a young adult, you made some mistakes early on, right? I mean, a few of us have made mistakes early on as young adults. And a lot of times parents will hold you to some of those earlier mistakes To where 20 years down the road, they're still treating you like you were when you were making all those mistakes. But you're like, no, I've grown. 
And they're kind of holding you to that because that's what they experienced one time from you and they lock that in. Just like a lot of times people will have a bad experience in a church setting and they hold every other pastor to that experience that they had. And they're not willing to grow. They're not willing to change or be teachable. They're not willing to, to, to trust again or whatever the case may be because, well, I, this happened and I think that it's always this way and I think it's always that way. And we get stuck in a rut and we don't grow because we're not teachable because we had either a good or bad experience and it has defined our expectations and we compare everything else from that point on to that experience. And we never grow. When God wants us to grow, he doesn't want us to be stuck. He doesn't want us to isolate and be critical, amen? Amen. He doesn't want us to, to, to develop this critical spirit where we're always just comparing and we're always uh, uh, trying to pit things against one another before we'll move forward or we'll grow or we'll trust in what God says to help us to move forward. You see, Jesus isn't simply changing things. He's bringing change through clarity. Jesus shows the crowd with the man that was lowered through the roof that he is indeed God in the flesh because he forgave sins and then he healed the man. He was showing them who he was. Jesus shows the value of heaven by eating with tax collectors and sinners. He shows how God is meeting people right where they're at. And the very people that you would think God wouldn't want anything to do with, he's reclining with. And he's trying to minister to them and show them grace and mercy and compassion. The very things that he's trying to model for us and show us what the true value of heaven is. The things that often we would go, I want to stay in my safe bubble. I don't want to eat with tax collectors and sinners and all those people. I mean, think about this. Think about how like non-PR of Jesus that it was to eat with tax collectors. Because during Jesus' day, the Romans were occupying Jerusalem and all of Israel. And so they're living under a Roman regime and under Roman leadership, right? They're having to pay taxes to Rome. And because they're coexisting the Romans are allowing the Jews to do most of their traditions and most of their things freely without any persecution. So it's not like the Romans are demanding that they become Romans. They just are in charge and are basically utilizing all their resources and inhabiting their land and controlling their land. So Rome is the enemy here, right? They're occupying in Israel. And if you're a Jew who goes and collects taxes on behalf of the Roman government, you are betraying your own country. You're betraying your own people. And here's what the Romans would do. This is how you made your money as a Jewish tax collector collecting taxes for the Roman government. They would let you add a percentage on top of what went to Rome, and that was your commission and how you got paid. So whatever you added on top of what the Romans demanded, that's how you lined your pockets. So if you're a posh tax collector and you're living a high life, it's because you're taking advantage of your own fellow countrymen who are not only having to pay taxes to the occupying government, but now you're taking advantage of them by forcing them to pay taxes to you. I mean, these were some folks that, I mean, wicked, that were not well thought of by their fellow countrymen. And Jesus, 
calls one of them to be his disciple, and Jesus is reclining at the table with a person like that, not a good PR move, Jesus. If you're like Jesus' PR manager or something, you're having a nightmare, right? <clears throat> I mean, you're like, we have to make a statement, you know. Uh, <laughs> and Jesus did this openly. It wasn't like it was a secret buddy that he was hanging out with. This is an open thing that Jesus is walking around, and they're like, isn't that Matthew? Hey, he owes me money, right? That jerk took my last penny or my last shekel, right? And this are the, these are the people Jesus is hanging out with? That should teach us something about this backwards idea of the kingdom of God and what God values and how God loves people where they're at. Jesus then gives the parable of the shrunken cloth and the new wineskins. And he says, you, you can't take a, a, this, this little patch and, and put it on to this hole. That's not what I'm doing here. He's trying to show them what he's bringing, the type of change that he's bringing through showing them the kingdom of God. He said, it's not like you're putting a patch on this, on this hole and I'm just kind of helping out because, you know, it, 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 that's not the kingdom of God. It's not even like the, the change that I'm bringing is something that you can pour into old wineskins. Like you would pour new wine into old wineskins because they all knew that that would cause the wineskins to burst. So obviously you don't want to do that because what I'm bringing and what I'm showing you and how I'm revealing to you the heart of God and how I'm showing you the truth, it's not like you can put it within the, the context and the boundaries of what you want. And this is what so many of us try to do. We try to put the new things that Jesus shows us, the revelation of the kingdom of God, we want to put it in something safe, comfortable, something well used, something that we felt like was trustworthy. But Jesus says, you can't do that. He said, you got to put it in a new wineskin. He said, I'm bringing a whole new thing. It's not just a patch and it's not just new wine to pour into an old wineskin because you guys know if that happens, it's going to burst. He said, you have to have a new wineskin. I'm bringing you new wine and a new wineskin. He's trying to show them that they're off track and they've missed it and I'm bringing something new for you to embrace. And Jesus knows this is hard. He knows that, that change is difficult and he knows that there are critics everywhere. But he's trying to show them truly why he's come and what he's bringing. Jesus is bringing change by clarifying what matters to God and he reveals to them when his disciples go out and start plucking heads of grain and they're wanting to have some lunch, he, he conveys to the critics that man is not to be confined by the Sabbath, but rather it's not this thing of con con condemnation, but the Sabbath is supposed to be a gift from God to man, and that Jesus declares himself as Lord over the Sabbath. That's a pretty big deal. He's saying, listen, I'm the one who instituted this. I make the rules, not you and all the little rules you want to make to complicate this idea of rest because you've taken something that was supposed to be restful and you've made a mess of it. And so I'm showing you what real rest looks like. I'm, I'm bringing change through clarity. I'm not altering it from the original intent or purpose. Actually, I'm bringing it back to the original intent. I'm bringing it back to the original purpose and showing you how far off you've gotten. I'm showing you how in error that you have gone by instituting your own ways and your own 
things that you have just made people miserable. I think that if we take an honest look in our own hearts, oftentimes we've done some of the same things as followers of Christ with some of our legalistic behaviors that we have tried to get everyone to conform to our image instead of getting people to conform to the image of Christ. And we have put a pretext on people saying that you have to be a certain way before we accept you, you have to be a certain way before we love you, or before we truly want to get to know you and befriend you. And if you smell like us, look like us, vote like us, dance like us, then you're in. You hang out at the same places we hang out at, and whoever we is, I don't know, whoever you want we to be, but we have our groups and we have these things in our heart that we have made church very, very complicated when Jesus didn't mean for the body of Christ to be as complicated as we've made it. It's actually very simple. It's as simple as people gathering in their homes and having meals together and worshiping God and praying for each other and serving each other. It's as simple as people opening up the scripture and sharing about Jesus with other people because they so love Jesus. It's really about that simple. And we have really um, made this thing complicated. And I believe that as we grow and as we become people who are being conformed into the image of Christ through this process of sanctification as he's cleansing us and causing, calling us to regular repentance and calling us to a place of growth, calling us to a place of teachability. I believe that he's refining us and he is helping us to grow if we will be teachable, if we'll have humble hearts, if we will serve him and serve one another and stop trying to prove who's right and how right we are and boast and stick our chest out but instead grab our servants towels and begin to serve one another and be humble and love one another the way that Christ loved us if we begin to look at the example of Christ if we begin to be lovers of the word not lovers of our opinions and lovers of our own ideas but lovers of his truth amen church these are the things that are going to help us to grow and to change from all of those things that we've done I, I, I look at how Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath with a, with a withered hand. And um, as we see that, we see that he's trying to show them that doing good is actually more important than your Jewish traditions. He basically just told them that doing good is more important than the whole Talmud, than all of your tradition, all of the layers you've added for centuries, and you've complicated the words of God. You've complicated the heart of God and you've missed it. Here's our big idea for today. Always be willing to give up what you believe, feel, or value for the truth. Always be willing to give up what you believe, feel, or value for the truth. Because you and I have a belief system. A lot of us have been handed that belief system. And we believe things because we've experienced them, we've felt them. Or because maybe it was just something that we experienced and was handed to us and we create these values that navigate our lives. But when the truth of God's word challenges what we've thought or what we've held dear, well then all of a sudden there's an arm wrestling match happening in your heart, right? Now you're locking arms with God 
Because when God shows you who he is through his word, it's not something that's up for discussion between you and God, where you go, well, God, I know your word says this, but that's where you need to stop right there. (laughs) That's where you need to stop right there, because guess what? God's going to win every time. But God, the culture says this, I I don't care. But I feel this way, I, I don't care. Because God's word trumps your feelings. God's word trumps culture. Matter of fact, God's word is often even countercultural. It's even countercultural in some of the things that we really like. And it challenges our traditions. Ooh. Challenges what makes us feel comfortable and accepted, and, and it makes us step outside of our comfort zone. And when I see the truth of God's word, I've got to be willing to give up everything to embrace that truth of what God said in his word. Amen? I've got to embrace the truth of the word. We've got to start with scripture because scripture is where we start. It's the beginning for our lives, for our church, for everything. Yeah. That scared me, Jay. I don't know what that is, but yeah. Kind of had a rhythm to it. I liked it. John Wooden, the famous basketball coach, he says this. It's what you learn after you know it all that counts. It's what you learn after you know it all that counts. See, Jesus was the word of God made flesh dwelling among us. The word of God brings clarity and Jesus was the walking embodiment of the word of God made flesh dwelling among us. Emmanuel, God with us. And so that means that the way Jesus interacted... And the things Jesus did was showing us the value system of heaven. It was showing us the heart of God. It was showing us what matters to God. It was also showing us that what mattered to us didn't matter as much to God as what we thought. Because we were so focused on us getting it right and God was exposing that and saying, no, sorry, you got that one wrong and I'm not just putting a patch on it. I'm not just putting new wine in an old wineskin. I'm trying to help you course correct. And I'm trying to help you see what's important and show you because I'm making all things new. I'm trying to show you the purpose of why I've come. I'm trying to show you that you thought you had it right, you know, by avoiding all those tax collectors and sinners, but actually I'm having dinner with them openly. I, I know you thought you had it right when you were avoiding those mean old bad tax collectors and those sinners and, you know, the prostitutes and all those people and you were kind of walking on the other side of the street, but actually I'm hanging out with them. <laughs> I I know you thought you had it right when you didn't want to do anything on the Sabbath because you wanted to get it right. And you were so focused on getting it right that you missed the heart of the whole thing. And you haven't been resting on the Sabbath, which is actually sin. (laughs) You haven't been resting. You haven't been taking that day of rest to honor God. You've actually been so worried and critical and judgmental of everyone else that you've missed the point. And so Jesus is trying to say, get back to what matters. I know you believe it. I know you're adamant about it, but I'm going to challenge you to give up what you believe for the truth because I'm going to bring clarity to it. And I'm going to bring change to clarity. I know it's going to be hard for you. I know you're going to falsely accuse me, but I'm going to keep preaching it and I'm going to keep showing you. And I'm going to give you every example I can think of. I'm going to grab some seed and I'm going to give an example. Uh, There's going to be some figs coming along. I'm going to give an example. I'm going to share some stories with you that hopefully help you to get it. There was this prodigal son one time. I'm going to tell a story. 
I want you to get it. I want you to get what matters to the heart of God. So when God tries to show you something, you don't get so arrogant that you miss it. And when you do see your arrogance in the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, exposes your arrogance, I want you to repent of it and turn away from it. Because my message is repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. That's Jesus' message. Repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm showing you the heart of God now. The word of God brings clarity. And I must always remain humble to learn because I don't yet know what I don't yet know. Jesus was wrongly accused because people wanted him to fit into their wineskin. Jesus was interested in the people that the majority of society was not. Even think about the Samaritans, right? Man, the natural enemies of the Jews. Jesus talked about the good Samaritan. Could you imagine? What do you mean, good Samaritan? Those two words are not synonymous. But Jesus wanted to show them. Talked to a woman at the well. Interacted with Samaritans. Interacted with enemies. See, we will be better able to navigate change by seeking clarity through humility and seeking God's kingdom agenda above our own. Amen? So here's what I want to ask you this morning. What do you need to submit to the will of God that you've been holding on to? What perhaps are you not seeing clearly or in line with what God is trying to do right now? What are those frustration points in your life? What are those regular points of criticism that keep coming back up over and over again in your conversation at home or your conversation with friends? Where do you find yourself routinely being critical? Where do you find yourself maybe even perhaps being an accuser when God is wanting to reveal in our hearts our sin, our need, and perhaps bring clarity through helping us to change and grow and see the value system of heaven, see what matters to him, and then see just what doesn't matter that we've made too big of a deal out of. God's word, God's kingdom, God's agenda, God's church, God's people. Lord, help us to see and desire what you want. Help us see these things, Jesus, by your word and by your spirit. Help us. Bring us clarity. Bring us vision. Help us to be humble and help us to repent. And help us to see clearly your truth for our lives, for our church, for our families. In Jesus' name.